Good morning. My name is Matthew, one of the pastors here. It's a joy to gather with you, a joy to sit underneath the Word of Christ along with you as well. It is Christmas season, and that means for many of us, it's the time of presents. Presents are everywhere. It's the time of shopping, the time of marketing, the time of all the unwrapping of the gifts. And we parents are already beginning to manage our children's expectations, manage their emotions as we go through this Christmas season with all these presents. I know that our family is already doing that. It was just this uh, past week with uh, our oldest. We've got a couple presents under the tree, and she's been, she's been eyeing these presents for a couple days now. And we're laying in the living room, and she looks at me. She says, Daddy, I can't wait till Christmas. I'm like, well, honey, Christmas is about waiting. We're waiting for Jesus, and this is, we're, we're waiting for Christmas. That's what Christmas is all about, is we wait for Jesus' second coming. And she says, well, no, Daddy, I can wait for Christmas. I can't wait to open the presents. <laughs> I'm like, well, you need to wait. She's like, no, I, I can't. She really means, we're about to open these presents right now. <laughs> and as eager as she is, the, the truth of the matter is, come Christmas morning, she's going to open those presents, and at some point, it's going to let her down. Whatever those expectations she might be holding on to as her eight-year-old heart and mind grapples with what's behind that wrapping paper, it's going to let her down, right? The novelty is going to wear off. The toy will get replaced by another toy. That thing will break down. That thing will crumble. That thing will recede into her memory as new things are on the horizon, and the, and the truth is, it's for us as well. We're the same way. This world is holding out to us presence. This world is holding out to us promises. Grand, big promises. Have this and you'll feel good. Get security by getting this. Right? Look this way. Feel this way. Be this way. All your problems will go away. But over and over again... The world lets us down. It's one big over-promise and under-delivery, right? The world cannot deliver at these core elements of, of fully satisfying us at the deepest level. But what if there was a present, a present that did satisfy us? It didn't leave us with the hangover, but it left us full and wanting more? What if there was a gift that never stopped giving? What if there was a gift that never got old, where the newness was always fresh, it was always glorious? What if there was a gift that we could receive that as we share it does not diminish? A gift that as we give it, it only increases and maximizes our joy of that gift, and that is the gift of Jesus. That's the gift of Jesus. What would you give for such a thing, right? And what we experience in the gospel is that gift is given to us in Jesus, and it is a free gift. It comes from God himself, apart from anything that we've done, right? He's not searching down the naughty or nice list to see if we get the present or not. We're all on the naughty list, and the present comes. The present comes to us. And this morning, we're looking at the resurrection. We've been going through Mark's gospel, specifically looking at the resurrection text this morning. 
and the gift of God to us through Jesus has been a little bit strange, right? Nobody's getting it in Mark's gospel. It's been very hard for the disciples themselves to piece together because you've got this guy, Jesus, and he's talking about how he's bringing the kingdom of God and all these wonderful promises are coming to bear on this dark world. And yet he's also talking about suffering and all this pain and how he's going to die and be raised from the dead. And they can't piece it all together. This king, this kingdom, these blessings, and yet there's all this suffering and it's very confusing for them. But today in the resurrection story, the gift of Jesus begins to be more clear to us. Right, the, the, the package gets unpacked a little bit in the resurrection where all the pieces start making sense. The kingdom of God could not come without Jesus suffering. Jesus had to suffer in order to bring about the kingdom of God. As we've been sharing the last couple of weeks, Christmas is an odd time to be studying the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, but it's in fact the most the, the, a prime time to get the fullness of the gospel. Jesus was born to die. That is true. And we can't miss that at Christmas. But we also can't miss that he was born to die in order that he might be raised to new life to bring us newness of salvation and life forevermore. So we're looking at the resurrection this morning, and a real simple outline this morning. just want to look at the, the truthfulness of the resurrection claims. Can we believe this thing? It's pretty crazy. We're going to believe that a man walked out of the grave 2,000 years ago. Why should we believe in the resurrection? It's the first half of this message. And then secondly, if so, if that is true, what does that then mean for us? Let's pray as we jump out. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word this morning that comes to us with a message of grace, a message of hope, a message of love and mercy, and a message of new life. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace this morning, God, in the midst of great busyness and great heartache in many of our lives, great trials that we're going through. In the middle of this dark, rainy morning, Lord, would you bring the light of the gospel, the light of your son Jesus, would it shine? Would the love of Christ be shed abroad in our hearts this morning? Give us ears to hear and a heart that would behold your son given to us for salvation, for your glory and our eternal joy. We ask your blessing upon our time and your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So why should we believe in the resurrection story? There's many that would claim and argue and attack Christianity and say, hey, this is just one big legend. It's the stuff of myth. It's, it's the stuff you Christians make up in order to make yourselves feel better about yourselves and to make yourself feel better about this world. It's a crutch. Come up with some really, really far-fetched story to make yourselves feel better. But is that true? Is it just a, a massive, massive hoax, one big lie that's gotten perpetuated through the centuries, or is it true? 
I believe and we believe that it is in fact true and Mark is laying out some of that evidence this morning even in this last bit of text in the gospel. The first thing that I want us to see, you to see, is that he is giving us the names in this story. As Blake mentioned a couple weeks ago, a lot of Mark's gospel has left everything anonymous. There's a lot of an anonymity in his gospel, but these names are showing up here with a purpose, a very clear purpose. And the three big events at the end of Jesus' life are his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Those th three things, even as Paul would say, I handed to you the things of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died, Christ buried, and Christ was raised from the dead. These three pieces are critical to our gospel message. And Mark here, in this last text, has these three pieces very clearly delineated out, and each one has its own testimony, its own witness to it. So we're going to jump to the, uh, to the death first, verse 44. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, was surprised to hear that he would have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So here with the death, we see the name given Pilate. Pilate is the authority here to speak to and to sign the declaration that Jesus is dead. He sends the centurion out. These centurions were professional executioners. They don't, they don't mess up. They, they know what they're doing. This centurion would not have missed the fact that Jesus was dead. Secondly, for the burial, jump back to verse 42, we see Joseph. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also looking, him, looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Jump to verse 46. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Hoses saw where he was laid. So we get three more names. We get Joseph and we get both the Marys, right? And then we have the resurrection beginning in verse 1. And as a... Uh, showing you these names. Also, just pay attention to the clear details. Mark is inserting specific details unlike anywhere else in his gospel in this piece of the letter. We'll return to that in a second. Verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll a stone away for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So we see both those same Marys, that repetition there, signifying, again, that Mark is very intent on this, the two Marys, and then we see Salome added to the list that saw the empty tomb. 
These names are given with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And why? Why, Mark, would you give us these names? Well, he's saying, go check it out yourself. Go check the facts. These are real people that you can go talk to. Go talk to them. Go ask them about it. They will testify to it. It's like they're getting, these events are getting notarized. There's, there's witnesses here. There are witnesses to these events. They're not happening in some cave somewhere, and somebody's just returning with like a revelation. No, that people are witnessing, multiple people from different sources are witnessing to these events. Go check the facts. So the names are part of that, fact-checking, those witnesses there. But secondly, there's the style of this account, which is very historical, and it's, very, it's an eyewitness account. Mark is writing largely from the perspective of Peter. That's what these details signify. This is not legend. This is not myth. It's eyewitness account. C.S. Lewis, who himself struggled with con- his conversion and believing these this crazy reality of Jesus coming out of the grave, he writes this. As a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legend, and I am quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They are not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they are clumsy. They don't work up to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as is the life of anyone else who lived at that time. And no people building up a legend would allow that to be so. Apart from bits of the Platonic dialogues, there is no conversation that I know of in ancient literature like the fourth gospel. There is nothing, even in modern literature, up until the last hundred years ago when the realistic novel came into existence. Mark's style is very unique at this time in history, and he's writing as a historian, an eyewitness account of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Yes, he's writing with theological intent, but it's that theology that's driving down through history. That's the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Christ for us in our place, but it's coming into history. It's not abstract. So we have the names, we have these details, this eyewitness account. We also have the fact of the unimpressive details in this account. Unimpressive details. First, we see that the witnesses here for the resurrection itself are all women. They're all women. In this culture, the testimony of women was was not valid. And so God is giving honor to women here. He's validating women. But in this culture, they did not give that sort of honor to women. Only the male testimony was received as truthful. So, Mark, why would you put women here? If you're making this up, put the men forward. You're, you're, you're being risky here by putting women forward to be the primary ones to testify. There's no men here because he's not making this up. It's an unimpressive detail. Another unimpressive detail is the fact that the disciples, right, the ones Jesus has been walking with this whole gospel, where are they? They're not here. They're absent. They're absent. Mark, if you're trying to make some crazy story up about this man Jesus and then the disciples that are strong, right? You, you want them to be strong. 
That's not what happens. Throughout the whole gospel, we see his disciples, Christ's disciples, weak, afraid, confused, sinful, out to lunch, spaced out, not getting it, over and over and over again. And then here, they're not here either at the resurrection. They're not, they're not piecing it together. It's unimpressive. It's an unimpressive account. The only reason why you would lay this forward at, in these details is that it's truthful. It's trying to be truthful. Next, we have outside of Mark's gospel. So those would be the ones that parent here in this last little bit of text. But outside Mark's account... We have the bodily appearances of Jesus to many, many people. He showed up to many, many people in bodily form. Furthermore, the disciples become a bold, radical force for the gospel, testifying to Jesus at the cost of their very lives. How do you explain this ragtag crew of disciples that is afraid? They're deathly afraid. They're not getting the gospel, and they're really afraid. They're hiding. And then overnight, this crew just gets singed with lightning, a force that cannot be put out, and they give their very lives for the sake of the gospel, testifying to it. What catalyzes a group of scared people into that sort of missionary mindset. Not a lie, but the truth of the resurrection. And then there's the the explosion of the church. There's no way to comprehend the, the absolute explosion of the church in the first century apart from an actual resurrection of Jesus Christ. Actual crazy explosion of the church. There had been myths, there had been legend, there had been lies, there had been all kinds of stuff to try to make you feel good, but it's not going to catalyze you into doing anything. We all can sniff out wishful thinking, and maybe, maybe one or two things kind of get, get stuck in our hearts and we can't escape from those false idolatries and false hopes, but you're talking about a massive, massive force of people that cannot stop sharing about the good news of Jesus Christ walking out of the grave. Into a dark world, all of a sudden, you are pumped. And you got something to share. It wasn't out of burden. They were being compelled to share the good news of Christ. And finally, the repulsiveness of the gospel to the first century context. And the idea that God would hang on a cross, as we've already been sharing the last couple weeks, that was so foreign. And it was repulsive. To anyone. It's repulsive. Suffering on a cross as a criminal. No, that person is cursed. That person is cursed. The Jews weren't getting it. The Gentiles weren't getting it. Everybody's saying that was not it. Not the Messiah. There might have been legends, but no uh, uh, stories where like you would pretend that the king would would somehow, or the uh, Roman governor, the Roman king would would go to heaven, right? But sometimes they were outside of, of the body. There was no bodily resurrection. There were myths about Caesar and going straight to heaven and other people, but nobody was appearing in bodily form. Again, because they thought that most people thought that the body was evil and suffering. You just want to get away from this body. 
And the Jews, they believed in a resurrection, but it was put very far ahead. We were all going to be raised from the dead at some point. So in comes this extremely foreign concept. That's the point I want to make. It's a, the gospel is extremely foreign to what they would be thinking at the, at the time. Jesus Christ comes out of the grave in bodily form. He's affirming the body. He's affirming the material universe. And he's God in the flesh, crucified and risen. Nobody makes that up. It's out of control. But Jesus appears, and it is true. So he is not a myth this morning. The resurrection is not a myth. It's not a legend. It's not just here to make us feel good to buy our time until we die in this broken world. The empty tomb exists. You can go check it out. You can talk to the people. He's alive. It's true. A man got out of the grave 2,000 years ago after being pronounced dead. Can we embrace that? Can we enter into these facts this morning and let it hit us afresh? Because it's weird. It is weird. And it's tough sometimes. You can't get it outside of faith. You have to just believe. You have to believe. But the facts are here. Would we enter in to see that it is indeed true? Wreaths falling all over the place. <laughs> Praise God. So it's true. It's true. Jesus stands when everything else falls apart. <laughs> and if it's true, then what does that mean for us? Right. Is he to be feared? I mean, that'd be scary too. God comes out of the grave. We just killed him. Are we to be afraid? What's going to happen? Right? What's going to happen? Kind of like they were afraid of John the Baptist, thinking that he was back, going to do some damage. And you can fear this because we did not receive him. We rejected the author of life. What does it now mean, though? What does it mean? And what does it mean for us? Is it a gift? Or is it not a gift? That's where we're going now. The first thing I want us to understand in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that we are forgiven of our sins. We are forgiven of all of our sin. The cross and the resurrection, they go together. They are one work that Christ is doing on our behalf. Two pieces, one big work of salvation for us. Easter Sunday, the resurrection on Easter Sunday, testifies to the sufficiency of what happened on Good Friday. They go together. The resurrection declares that the, that the price paid was sufficient, complete, total, paid for, a sufficient substitute. If Jesus was not the perfect substitute, he'd still be in the grave. So when he comes out of the grave, it is declared to everyone, hey, your debt paid in full, not another penny left, right? You take an economic analogy and you look at your bank account, and because of what you have done to God, the way that you have sinned against him, your bank account is significantly in the red, negative 
infinitely so. You got a lot to pay back. There's a lot to pay back. And when Jesus comes out of the grave, what God is declaring is, every penny's been paid. Go check out your bank account. You don't owe any more money. You don't owe any more money. Completely forgiven of everything you have ever done, past, present, and future. Forgiveness is a sweet, sweet thing. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. When we're forgiven, we're justified before our righteous, holy God. My favorite definition of being justified is to think of it, we are, I am just, wow, just if I had never sinned, justified before God. That's the way he sees us this morning, just as if we have never sinned. All of our sin is on the son who paid the price. But more than that, Next, we see that we are made righteous. As Christ comes out of the grave in righteousness, we come out of the grave in His righteousness. Now, when you check the bank account, it's not just that you don't owe God anything. You are filled up. You are infinitely filled up in there. Your bank account, slam full with the righteousness of Christ. The same righteousness that God the Father would, would rejoice in and see in the Son, my, 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 my righteous Son. That's the same righteousness that He sees in us this morning. That ought to shake us a little bit. That's, that's a little foreign. We don't like to think of ourselves with that much credibility. We kind of get used to thinking of ourselves so lowly. But this morning in the gospel, God sees us as forgiven and made righteous sons and daughters of His. We're no longer slaves. We're, we're His sons and daughters, fully righteous. He rejoices over us. He sings over us. He's glad about us. He's pleased in us. Praise God, huh? Praise God. And then the righteousness... More so than the righteousness, this just kind of keeps on. This is one big, long sentence I'm weaving together. We're forgiven, we're made righteous, and we're going to live forever. We are going to live forever. When Jesus comes out of the grave, he affirms that he is overcoming death. He has overcome death, and he's overcome death for us. Death is the, the great big shadow, that great big enemy that's just chasing us, and it's haunting us all of our lives. It's been haunting us since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Death, if, if you're new to Christianity or wondering what's going on, if you wonder why death is in the world, it's because we sinned against God, and that's part of our punishment physically, and it's leading towards eternal death. And Jesus in the gospel takes care of death because he's taking care of our sin problem. That shadow of death that's chasing us, that we live in, we live in the valley of the shadow of death all of our lives. But Jesus on the cross and coming out of the grave, he gives the death blow to death itself. He goes down into the grave and he robs the grave of all of its power to lead us into life. He takes death so that we would not have to. Yes, we still die in this life, but death is just a stepping stone for us 
It's a doorway into more glory, eternal joy. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. God comforts us. He can comfort us because he has tasted death for us. He now has dominion over it. And so do we. Because we're in him. That death is not leading to an abstract existence somewhere in the clouds. It's leading to a real bodily existence. That's the next thing we see. We're going to live forever in a new home. A new home prepared for us by God himself. Jesus says he's going away. He's preparing a home for us. And he's coming back. This new home, there will be no more sin. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more Satan. In bodily form, in a physical world, a new heavens and a new earth will be our home. Where he will wipe away every tear. We will be so filled with the happiness of God. No more suffering. That's a crazy thought. Also, these are crazy thoughts. And this is true. We're going to a new home. This is not, this is not it. If, you, if you're aching in your soul about this world, waking up day after day after day going, is this all there is? What is going on? What is the point of life? This is so depressing. The Bible comes right into that. The Bible's not, the Bible's not pushing suffering and death underneath the, the carpet. Christ is entering into our broken world. He said, yes, it is very broken. And he's entering into it, not escaping from it, to bring us a real new redeemed world. We take comfort. Romans 8, all creation is longing and groaning to be made new. A whole new creation. Creation itself is groaning. And we too, the word says, who have the spirit of God living inside us, are groaning, Abba, Father, when can I be made new? Oh, when can I get the full new heart? Oh, when am I going to be in the new, fully redeemed new heavens and new earth? When is that going to happen? And we're groaning. It's okay to groan. It's right to groan. A lot of pain in this world. But we're groaning towards a real hope. For Paul would say, even in Romans 8, for who, who hopes for what they already see? But we hope for what we do not see. We have a hope this morning that extends way, way beyond the grave. It's not where our timeline gets terminated. Nobody's timeline actually gets terminated there. We're all being raised from the dead. Some of us to life, some of us to eternal judgment. But if we accept Christ this morning, dying in our place death for us, then we are free to walk into a new heavens and a new earth. If not, then we have to bear that judgment. That debt that we owed, we still owe it. We still owe it. And until you bend the knee and confess Jesus as Lord and as your Savior, you still owe it. Don't owe it this morning. Let Christ pay for it. In Galatians, Paul's talking again. And he says, I don't nullify the grace of God. 
for salvation were by works, Christ died for no purpose. If you could earn salvation by being a good person, Christ died for no purpose. Are you prepared to tell Jesus today that he died for no purpose? Don't do that. Receive the gift of grace and salvation for you. Receive him. But it gets better because he is the focus of all this. And the last bit about what the resurrection means is that Jesus will reign forever and ever and ever. That's where we're going. We're going to a kingdom where he is the king and he is ruling. His sovereign rule is reigning over everything and that reign is a good reign. We love that reign. He protects us from everything bad. He gives us everything that's good. He gives us his presence. He gives us his provision. He gives everything possible to us that would fill us with everlasting joy and life. And Jesus coming out of the grave declares that. He is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. As Ephesians would say, he's been super exalted, raised from the dead, and super exalted high above every other name that can be given, not only in this age, but in the age to come. No name, no power, no authority, no anything could ever again rival him. He is Lord over it all. And he ain't coming down. He died on that wooden throne and he raised to the throne at the right hand of God Almighty. Hallelujah. The eternal one reigns this morning on our behalf, both now and forever. What does the resurrection mean for us? It means that we are forgiven, we are made righteous. We will live forever in a new heavens and a new earth and a bodily resurrection where Christ will be our eternal king to satisfy us forever and ever and ever and ever. That's a good deal. That's a good gift. You don't have to get on Amazon to do it. You don't have to click anywhere. Don't have to buy it. You don't have to pay a penny. Not a penny. And we are given eternal life. As we're celebrating, is it not, church? What a gift. What a marvelous gift, the wonderful gift of salvation to us this morning. That's a lot of theology. Maybe that's not connecting all with you. I hope it does. But maybe in other language, put it this way, as it's been said by others, everything sad is becoming untrue. Every nightmare you've ever had is becoming untrue. No fear you've ever had will come to pass. Just like Jesus closed his eyes on this dark, broken world on Good Friday, he opened his eyes again. And the same is true for us. We close our eyes. And there'll be a day when we close our eyes for the last time on this earth, and we go under in death. But we will open our eyes.
this again. It's dark here. And the sun often escapes us. The light of Christ so often hidden from us. But the light will shine. Sunday morning will come. Resurrection will come. And we are to hold on by faith, believing that. And as C.S. Lewis has in Narnia, the great winter is thawing. The coldness is already dissipating. And you can see the buds and the flowers of spring beginning to come out. That's what the resurrection testifies to us. That winter is over. Spring is upon us. Partly now and fully in the age to come. What a gift it is. Are you entering into the gift? Are you receiving the gift this morning of resurrection, joy, and glory? And Mark does something very interesting here. He, he abruptly ends this text. You might have in a footnote these remaining verses following verse 9 to 20 that these were not part of original manuscripts. And I would take that line of thought. I don't think there's any real good reason or evidence to believe that those are authentic verses. They were added later. So it's like so abrupt that people were adding in at a later time to try to make this story rounded out, give it some, give it some smoothness at the end. Because it's abrupt. abrupt. So if, it's, if you're saying, okay, Matthew or Mark, it's, it, it's abrupt, why is it abrupt? Why are you leaving it here? I mean, the very last word is afraid. <laughs> At least in the English. I didn't check it in the original. But that's how it's, it's ending. It's ending with disciple, uh, these, uh, these ladies. They are fleeing the tomb. Right? They've just been told, Christ has died, Christ has risen, check the tomb, go tell the disciples and Peter. And they're fleeing in shock, and they're trembling, and they're afraid, they're quiet. Why are you leaving us here, Mark? Why not like the other Gospels? I mean, some, some go out with a bang, right? Jesus himself appears, and there's some great big Gospel commission, vibrancy, and mission, and enjoyment of God, and it just stops. Why, Mark? And I think the reason is because Mark is pressing the issue of faith to us. He's turning it over to us. Right? The style all along has been this like up-close, personal encounter with Jesus, and, and all along, the question has been there, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Look at the facts. Who do you say he is? Look at the facts. Look at what he's doing. Who do you say he is? And we saw last week, the climax of the whole gospel is in verse 39 of chapter 15, when the Roman centurion says, sure, this is the Son of God. That's the climax of the whole book. Mark is driving in a confession of faith that nobody is getting the whole book except for the centurion as Jesus is hanging on a cross. And so it's being turned to us. I believe that's what's going on here. It's a cliffhanger. It's turned and said, okay, it's your turn. 
you've been journeying through this gospel, we as a church, all year. It's been beautiful and wonderful. All that Jesus has done and said, all of his healings and his demonstrations of power and his teaching, walking with the disciples, teaching disciples, casting out demons, his predictions of his death and his resurrection. We've been journeying it all along. And here, finally, we're not getting all the facts that maybe we would want. And I think Mark's doing that intentionally. He's saying, will you enter in by faith? The tomb is empty. The crucified one has risen from the dead. See his tomb, his empty tomb. Make the confession. That's the gift. We need to first make this confession. Okay, God, you have come for me in Christ. And receive salvation free, as we've been talking about. As a last little note here, I just love, we, we talked about this last when we encountered Peter in, in this gospel. Peter denied Christ three times. And it's so wonderful here, it's such a blessing, that, the, that this man says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Why does Peter get drawn out? He gets singled out. Go make sure Peter knows. Jesus loves him. He denied him right at his moment of greatest need. But go make sure Peter knows that this salvation is a message and a salvation of grace. Maybe this Christmas you need to be reminded. There's grace. Go tell the disciples and fill in the blank with your name. Jesus is for you. His resurrection power is for you. He wants to see you. That's the first half of it. And he says, go, go tell the disciples. I think it has this missional bent to it. Christmas is about receiving the gift of Christ. Christmas comes to us in Christ, and then Christ, Christmas goes through us. That we as a church are testifying to this light. We're testifying with glad, filled hearts, Christ has come. A great light has beamed out into the darkness of the Gentiles, the darkness of this world, Christ has come. And we as the church get to be the glad takers of that. We are ambassadors for Christ. We're ambassadors going out proclaiming this good news of the gospel. So what end with that? Are we confessing Christ, but are we also taking Christ? Or are we a holy huddle? Are we just feasting on Christ ourselves, but not, not actually entering into the fullness of what God has for us? Because the truth is, this is the gift that keeps on giving. And the more we give it away, the more that we enjoy it. This Christmas, who will you open your heart up to? Who might you open your dinner table up to? In your home, in your refrigerator, who might you open your life up to? Who might you share the wonderful gift of Christmas with? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such grace that you have come for us, God. We did not deserve it. And we thank you for grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, peace and love and hope and joy. There is no better present out there than the gift of your Son. God, we, even in this moment, God, by faith, receive Christ all over again, and we count this world as loss. 
We are new creations in your son, Jesus, heading towards a new creation. And we just ask God for the grace, the grace even now too, God. We all have memories and sins and shame that we carry along with. And, and we just pray, God, in this moment, for the grace, Lord, to have them buried. God, to have those fears and those sins buried with Christ that we might live in the fullness of all that you've called us to, God. We let go of the past. and We let go of our sin and our shame this morning to be all that you have created us to be. New creations in Christ for your glory. God, would you exalt your Son in our church. May we carry the light to this dark world. For your glory, the joy of the nations, and the joy of our own hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen.